Awesome. So, um, yeah, we're going to have a look at this, this passage today. Um, and I've called this message uh, Easter Posture. So let's just pray as we, we come to look at the Word together. Father, we just thank you for, yeah, this special day and, um, yeah, just the first day of the week, a Sunday, and we get to celebrate your resurrection every day and every week, but particularly today we just remember you, Jesus, as, as risen and, and Lord, and, yeah, just recognize that you are here um, in us as your believers and, and with us as your body, and, yeah, we just ask you to speak to us by your Spirit. Yeah, touch our hearts with the reality of your risen presence. Um, so we just invite you and just offer this time to you in your name. Amen. So when we talk about posture, um, often it's like about how, how we're sitting, maybe, or how we're standing and how we're walking. Not really talking about that today so much, um, so don't worry about that. But I just wonder maybe what's your posture today as you come to Easter, as we come to worship, what, what's your posture in your heart? Because we can kind of have... A body posture, but then we can also have a heart posture, or perhaps an attitude, or a, or a disposition. Um, and I suppose I just want you to consider when you come today to celebrate Easter, when we come to worship today, wh- wh- where is your posture? And to be open and to be honest about that, because I think some, sometimes when we have celebrations, um, Easter, Christmas, and, and so forth, sometimes there can be a pressure to just to, to be excited and to be happy and to be joyful. And maybe, maybe you're not. Uh, maybe that's actually not really how you're feeling. Actually, Easter is not a time at all to fake it. It's not a time to try and hype something up. Um, this is not at all a story of hype. It's not a story of looking on the bright side. It's not a story of trying to be happy when actually you're not. It's actually a story of people who are totally devastated but are then transformed. So I just invite you to be open about where your posture is at today, but actually be open to it being transformed. So I'm going to go through this story, um, because we see that the disciples of Jesus, um, before this, this morning, they are not hopeful, they are not joyful, they are devastated. We don't even hear in the story where the men are. They've totally forsaken Jesus before the cross or at the cross. The women stay with Jesus. They stay with him at the cross. They see him buried, and now they're going to the tomb. We see this in Matthew 28, um, what we read before, verse 1. After the Sabbath, they, they rest for a day, they wait for a day. At dawn on the first day of the week, a Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. So again, the men are nowhere to be found. The women are being loyal and, and faithful and, and are going to look at the tomb. But we read in Luke 24, why are they doing that? It says, they go and they took spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They spent the day before the, the Sabbath preparing spices, and now they're going to anoint Jesus' body that's been buried. So what are they doing? In, in, in many ways, they are just making the best of a really terrible, tragic, awful situation. Jesus is dead. There's no thought. They have no thought that he's alive. The, the disciples have no thought that he's alive. But the women are seeking to just go and make the best of what they can do. At least they can honor Jesus' dead body. At least they can preserve it. It's interesting, though, because Jesus had said multiple times that he would rise from the dead. And he'd even said it a couple of nights before when he instituted the Lord's Supper and had Passover. He said it even then. He said it so many times. But it seems like none of the disciples remember that he said that. Like the women are not going to see if he's risen. They're going to look at his dead body. 
The, the men are nowhere to be found. The only people who seem to have actually remembered what Jesus said is his enemies, the religious leaders. I don't know if you read that, heard that in that, in that story, that the, the leaders are concerned that Jesus, the deceiver they call him, said that he would rise from the dead. So if, if that's the case, maybe the disciples will come and steal him and now they'll, they'll make a claim that he rose from the dead. That's what the religious leader are thinking. The disciples in no way are thinking of doing that. That's like so far from where the disciples are at. They are nowhere to be seen. They have deserted Jesus completely. The men are not even going to look at the tomb, let alone scheming a plan to fake a resurrection. That's just so far from where the disciples are at. Where the disciples are at, they are in a posture of defeat. The women, again, are doing something that's honoring. They're doing more than the men. They're seeking to honor Jesus' body, but even that, they're doing it from a posture of defeat. Jesus is dead. At least we can honor him, but this is the end. A posture of defeat is simply accepting things the way they are. Maybe it's still looking on the bright side. Well, at least we can honor Jesus' body. Maybe it's like, at least we can just keep going. At least we can remember him and the times that we had with him. A posture of defeat just accepts the status quo and says, we just need to make the best with what we've got. And sometimes we can adopt a posture of defeat. And again, maybe even looking on the bright side, but still accepting a defeated position. Um, I was at a conference a, a couple of years ago, Mark says, who I I love was talking about the Australian church in many ways and kind of sort of middle ground churches. And he said, in, in many ways, our churches are characterized by a posture of defeat. We just want to keep it going. We just want it to be a little bit better. We just want to try and just be comfortable and get by, which is actually a posture of defeat rather than actually re- recognizing, expecting God to move powerfully. And we can have a posture of defeat about things that even God has said. Jesus had said that he would rise, but they've forgotten and they're defeated. About the church, we can have a posture of defeat. But as we, as we heard Sam preach a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said, I will build my church. That's what he said. So we don't need to have, if, if we take our cues from our, our culture or the situation, maybe we might feel defeated. But if we take our cues from what Jesus said, that he is at work, and he will build his church, then we don't need to have a posture of defeat. Perhaps there's things that we face where the enemy intimidates us to a posture of defeat, even like in this story, the leaders are concerned about Jesus, so they, he's in a tomb and sealed, and then actually they, they're not, they're not um, satisfied to stop with that. They'll put a guard and a seal up against the tomb to block up what God has promised. But we see into this posture of defeat on the Easter morning, a, a powerful inbreaking of heaven. Into this posture of defeat, we read, there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, and shook and became like dead men. This is crazy, right? They're in a posture of defeat, going toward a tomb, and all of a sudden there's an earthquake, an angel. The angel, it says, comes down, right? The guards disperse. The angel just moves the stone and then sits on it. Like, that's such a dominating thing to do, right? Just like, get out of the way. I'm going to sit on that stone. And, and this angel is, is, is totally scares these Roman guards. 
like strong guards who are there to, to protect, to make sure nothing goes on, and they are totally afraid. This is not at all what was expected. And when God's kingdom moves, he just, just pushes aside the work of the enemy like nothing. The, the stone is just moved. It's not a problem. The guards are dispersed. It's not a problem. Heaven breaks in with power. And then the angels speak. It says, The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. The, the, the women are in a posture of defeat. They're just trying to make the best of a bad situation. But then when they get there, they've prepared for a dead body, and there's no body. It's, it's gone. The situation that they expected to encounter is totally transformed by the reality of the empty tomb. They encounter the reality of the empty tomb, that Jesus' body is gone, just as he said. It's interesting, the angels as well. The, in the resurrection accounts, the angels are just so matter-of-fact, and they almost are having a dig at the disciples. They say, Jesus is not here. Sorry, like, you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's, he's gone. <laughs> like, he's risen, just as he said. <laughs> it's like, don't you remember what he said? And then there's other times when, when the disciples come, the angels say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? <laughs> the angels are like, what are you even doing here? <laughs> like... Like, let's just have a go at them, pretty much. Because the tomb is empty. And this is actually like a fact of history. Like, we're talking about history. Jesus as a real person, a real event. That, and basically, no one disputes that the tomb was empty. There's no body. There's never been a body found. Even Jesus' opponents in this story accept that the tomb is empty. They have to have another theory. The theory that we saw... Um, in the end of that passage that they come up with to explain it, is that the disciples stole the body. They, so which means the tomb is definitely empty. Otherwise, they would say, no, no, just go look in the tomb. Although, no, look, let's be found his body. But no one has found his body. They have to make up other stories and other theories to make sense of the fact that it's empty. The, the theory that the disciples stole the body makes no sense. Well, for one, in the Matthew account, the guards are bribed to say that the disciples stole the body while they were asleep, which, how do you know the disciples stole the body if you were asleep? <laughs> like, who, who, how did you see them? Like, did you just go back to sleep? Like, so that doesn't make any sense. The disciples stole the body. They had no incentive to do that. There is no benefit for the disciples to steal the body. They, they died for their confession that Jesus was alive. And you might say, well, yeah, people die for their faith all the time. But if the disciples stole the body, they didn't die for their faith. They died for a lie. They would know that it was a lie if they stole the body. And they gave their life. And they had no earthly benefit for this idea of the resurrection. And in these accounts, we see that they did not even expect this to happen. So this Easter posture is not just hopeful thinking. It's not just looking on the bright side. It's a posture that can be transformed by peop these people on the first Easter. They were defeated but that they encountered the reality of the empty tomb. Not just like a spiritual change in their heart, a physical reality that the tomb was and is empty. So I just encourage you, if you are in a posture of defeat in any way, just to recognize the reality of the empty tomb. 
it is a reality. It is true. He is not there. We see, though, in this story, it gets better than that. The woman hurried away from the tomb, from verse 8, afraid yet filled with joy. Like, this is a fearful thing, right? Like, it's freaky (laughs) that Jesus is risen from the dead. Imagine going to a cemetery to look for somebody, and the grave is out of the ground. It's open, and there's someone that's there that says, sorry, he's not here. Like, that would be incredibly scary. But yet they're also filled with joy. It says, they ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. Then they came to him. They clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. They're on their way. They, they, they run from the tomb. They're afraid. They're joyful. They're confused. And all of a sudden, they see Jesus. And again, this is so cool. Like The resurrection accounts are just so matter-of-fact. They're so humble. It's not that Jesus comes back as like a scary ghost of, I'm Jesus. He just rocks up and says, hello. Like, hello. Like, it's effectively what he does. And they, they recognize him, and then they, they touch him. They, they touch his feet. It's this intimate grasping to him. But they bow down, and they, they worship him as God. And he allows them to worship him. He, it, it's this scary, awe-inspiring thing, but it's this intimate thing of he's their Lord, and they can touch, and they can grasp him. These women who are making the best of a bad situation now encounter the reality of the risen Jesus. They, they see him. They touch him. Again, the enemy did his worst to Jesus, and it was tragic, and it was terrible, and it was gruesome and excruciating. He went to the cross. He died. He paid it in full. It's finished. But then he's fine. All of a sudden, it's okay. Like, there's no problem. He's back. It's done. The, the resurrection accounts are actually quite just matter-of-fact and humble and simple, that he's just alive. What the enemy did was the worst he could do, and it was nothing. Jesus wins without a problem. People saw him, multiple people saw him and encountered him and and touched him. And again, this is a reality because this is people who were not expecting to see him. This is not people that are just wishing that Jesus would rise from the dead. These are people that had no thought of that. They'd totally forgotten it. And then they encounter him as the risen Jesus. And not just spiritually. They don't, they don't encounter a ghost. They encounter a physical person who they see him eat. They, they touch him. He talks with them. Jesus appeared to multiple people at multiple times. And again, this has to be explained somehow, that the disciples genuinely believed that they saw Jesus. And most people accept that, even, even people who don't follow Jesus, except the disciples genuinely thought they saw Jesus. And if they didn't, you have to come up with another theory. Then what happened? One of the main theories is that they were just hallucinating. But, but it's a group of people hallucinating at multiple times and actually touching him physically. And then there's even also the account of Saul, who's an enemy of the church, who hates Christians, who encounters the risen Jesus and is totally transformed. So the risen Jesus is a reality. And when he appears to people, so often in the gospel accounts, again, he appears and he says, peace. He's all of a sudden, he's there. He says, peace, peace be with you. The risen Jesus is full of peace, and he offers peace. He's one. So again, there's an invitation today to look to the risen Jesus, to the one who went to the lowest place, to the one who conquered, to the one whose word proved true. He said this would happen, and it 
did. He's alive, and not to die again, but he's alive as the first of the new creation, never to die again. What looked like the end was actually the beginning of the new creation. Had a, a cool thing happen to me that just kind of tied in with the resurrection and just spoke to me a couple of months ago. Um, I went for a run on my day off, just out in the bush. And at the start of the run, I came across a little kookaburra um, that was on the side of the track and, and was basically dead. It was just sitting there. Um, its eyes were open. It didn't make any noise. It wasn't moving. I thought it, th- thought it was really sick. Um, and I just didn't know what to do. I kind of tried to help with it, and I just, nothing, nothing, I didn't, wasn't sure what to do. And I tried to call some numbers, tried to call RSPCA and so forth, and no one, no one picked up. I didn't know what to do, so I thought I'll just, I, I literally thought this cooker was about to die. I can't really do anything. I'm just going to keep running. So I went on the rest of my run. I came back um, at the end of it, and it was still there. It hadn't moved at all. It was still in the same position. I thought there's something really wrong here. I'll try and do something. So I, so I picked it up. And I'm carrying it, and it's just this weak thing. Again, it doesn't make any noise, doesn't barely move. It's like this really, really weak bird that's about to die. And I, I take it, I put it in the boot of my car, and start driving to the vet. And the whole time, I'm just thinking, this this bird's dead. It's it's as good as gone. Maybe this will just help it to have a nice end of life. Like the vet might be able to do something to it. Maybe they're probably just going to put it down. But it's just like it's just such a nice Australian animal that was so special. I just thought it was just good to do something for this bird. But I just thought it's it's dead. It's it's at the end. It's probably going to die in the car on the way. And I get to the vet and and take it in, and and the assistant sort of grabs it and just starts like pulling its wings, and it kind of pops its head up a bit, and and she looks at it and she says, "This looks like a fledgling," and and I didn't even know what that meant. But a fledgling is a is a baby uh, bird that has been kicked out of its nest because they, they kick them out of their nests and they have to survive on the ground for a while and they, they're dependent on their parents coming to feed them until they're ready to, to fly. And this one has probably been lost from its parents um, and something might have happened to the parents or has just been lost and it had lost strength. It couldn't move, it couldn't feed itself, but it's a baby. I, I thought this was a bird at the end of its life that was about to die and it was actually at the very beginning of its life. It was a baby bird that just needed care and attention. And a kookaburra is such a cool bird because it just flies up and, and laughs. And I just thought, I just thought, this is, it just laughs. And, and it's just a picture of resurrection. I, I was just trying to make the best of this bad situation. How do I help this bird die well? But the situation was totally transformed. It was a young baby. It was at the start of its life. And sometimes we come with a posture of defeat in, in our world, in our lives, and we think, how do we just make the best? How do we just end this world? How do we just survive? But actually, the resurrection means we're invited to totally transform and say, actually, what looks like the end might actually be the beginning. What looks like is dead may actually have life. So we're actually called, because of the resurrection, not to focus on earthly things, but to focus on heavenly things, which again, I love a kookaburra that just flies up and laughs. And I think there's a picture of focusing on heavenly things in the midst of earthly struggles that we can rise up and laugh and set our minds on things above. Colossians 3 says it this way, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. 
Because of the resurrection, we're invited not to have a posture of defeat by focusing on earthly things, focusing on situations that are, humanly speaking, hopeless, but actually focus on things above where Christ is risen, knowing that actually the way things are in our lives, perhaps, the way things are in our world, perhaps, are not the way they will always be. Jesus will come, and His life will be revealed, and we'll be found in Him And on that day, everything will be totally transformed. So an Easter posture is an invitation to step into a posture of hope. Because of the reality of the empty tomb, because of the reality of encountering the risen Jesus. Again, not hype, not fake, but actually letting these truths touch our heart to move from a posture of defeat to confident hope. Not wishful thinking, not looking on the bright side, but confidence that because Jesus is risen, God has started his new creation. He's made us new. One day he will make all things new. It doesn't mean we ignore the realities of the world. It doesn't mean that life is not hard. It doesn't mean there won't be suffering and pain and difficulty. But in that, there's resurrection hope. There's power because the tomb is empty. It doesn't mean there's not a battle. There is a battle. But we fight the battle not as people who are defeated, but people who have victory. We know the end. We don't have to fear. We can have hope. Leslie Newbigin on this, he writes that, he says, I've suggested that the absence of any sense of a worthwhile future was one of the marks of our present culture. In many ways, yeah, people don't have hope for the future. So much about the future is that it's just going to be chaos, right? But by contrast, one of the marks of the biblical counterculture will be a confident hope that makes hopeful action possible even in situations which are, humanly speaking, hopeless. That hope is reliable because the crucified Lord of history has risen from the dead and will come in glory. We're called to a posture of hope even in situations that are, humanly speaking, hopeless. We're called not to a posture of defeat, but of confident hope. Not because of our circumstances, because the reality of the empty tomb and the risen Jesus. It's interesting, the women who go to the tomb... Because they spend their Sabbath preparing spices. It says they, they, they rest on the Sabbath and they've been preparing these spices to take to anoint Jesus' body. They did a lot of work to do that, right? They're preparing. They're expecting to encounter a dead body that needs care. So they prepare for that. But what happened to the spices? Right? They prepared these spices. When they get there, they're totally irrelevant. Those spices, maybe they just chucked them in their shock, in their awe. Maybe they just left them. Like, they didn't use them. They, they weren't necessary. They weren't required anymore at all. I think there's a picture here of when we accept defeat, perhaps we just start to prepare and we invest time and energy in just making the best for a situation that's actually a defeated situation, which if Jesus comes, if resurrection happens, those things will be totally irrelevant. Those spices became totally irrelevant. There's a question for us today. What are you investing in that will be totally irrelevant when he comes? Because one day, to- everything is going to change. Jesus is going to transform everything. And there's things in our lives, there's things that we spend time and attention on that will be totally irrelevant. They will be seen to be an absolute waste. They won't be worth anything. Earthly comforts, things that we do without faith, simply trying to make life comfortable and bearable and just focusing and just setting up home here and now 
the amounts in our bank accounts, our houses, our human status, our reputation are things that will be irrelevant when he comes. They don't last. But what will last? What are the things that will last? What does it look like to be people with a posture of hope who live in the confident expectation that he will come, that he is alive, that he has the victory, that we don't operate from defeat, but hope, faith, hope, and love. He says these are the things that last. Relationship with him, with others, our work for the kingdom, our hopeful work in the world, our love for him, even in our weakness, even in our suffering. Everything that we offer for him in faith will last forever, is the promise. There's this great verse from 1 Corinthians 15 after Paul has, has talked about the resurrection and how it's so important and how it changes everything. If Jesus wasn't raised, this is all pointless, but he is, so we have hope. Then he says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that the, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What we do for him in faith, in whatever situation we are, even if it's humanly speaking hopeless, will last. It will be offered to him when he comes. It is not in vain because he's alive. Again, I think Jesus uh, like is, was valued and honored by the women going to the tomb with the spices in their, their hearts. But what they were doing was irrelevant because he was going to totally transform that situation. And how better to actually be going to the tomb with hope. Jesus said that he would rise. Maybe he's alive. What would it be like in our lives to not accept defeat, but say, Jesus said this. Maybe he's going to do it. Let's believe him for it. Let's trust him. Let's bank it all. He says when he appeared to the disciples, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We have a hope. We're invited to set our minds on things above. And because of that, live as Jesus in sacrificial love, not in resignation, but in hope of resurrection. So if you could stand with me and, and let's pray. And then we're going to sing and, and celebrate. Yeah, Jesus, we believe and confess yeah, that your tomb is empty. We declare that today, that tomb is empty and that he is risen. He is not here. You are alive. And Lord, we just ask that you'd fill us afresh today with faith to believe, even though we may not have seen you. We ask for faith to believe in the reality that you are risen. God, we ask that you'd transform the things in our lives where we feel defeated, where we feel or maybe are, humanly speaking, hopeless to a posture of hope because you are alive. We ask, God, that you'd fill us with love, love that's able to lay ourselves down in hope that you raise us again, that you are with us always. And we ask you'd fill us with joy, like the joy of a kookaburra who, who laughs, who rises above, who can see um, the horizon, who can see the day that's to come. God, the day that you're going to transform everything, we ask that you give us grace to invest in things that will last because you will come again. We just pray this in your name. Amen.